indoor air quality is now on the minds of everybody. How can we improve the air quality in general? So Erlab is a company that provides protection through filtration for your breathing zone in the laboratory and outside the laboratory. And why we're here in the commercial space today is to provide protection for the air that we breathe. It's very important in commercial spaces, obviously because there's a lot of people that come in and out of restaurants, schools, long-term care facilities, whatever it may be, offices. So we want to provide the healthiest air possible so we can get back to some sort of normalcy. Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors live show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors magazine, and thank you for joining us uh, today. So th this today's program is uh, it features a guest that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. He's, he's a hard guy to cage. You know, I've been having trying to get him to write, too. So uh, it's very exciting to have him here. Uh, our today's guest is Carl Grimes. He's been in the industry a long time. Uh, I'll read his bio in a second, but he's I just wanted to preface this by saying Carl's also coming on uh, in Healthy Indoors magazine as one of our regular contributors. He'll be writing a column starting in the uh, August issue called uh, Parachutes and, excuse me, Guardrails and Parachutes. And uh, so today's title for the show is similar to that, right? We're, we're calling it guardrails and parachutes. And it's what uh, both commercial and uh, residential consumers, as well as practitioners need to know about IAQ issues. Um, so the focus for today is, is going to be talking about a lot of the misconceptions, the miscommunications, and uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let Carl really get into that and uh, detail all that for you. So uh, without further ado, uh, Carl Grimes has uh, direct experience consulting with those who experience complaints indoors and as a leader in the industry intended to fix those causes. Because he's also originally experienced the harm in his own personal life, he has a unique perspective and approach for understanding and communicating the complications and confusions fusions between them. Uh, he is the past president of IAQA, uh, the vice president of practice for ISIAC. He chaired the IAQA Healthy Home Committee, wrote uh, the Healthy Home Assessment Principles course, um, and I can go on and on, but he's really, Carl, Carl if I give your entire uh, background, we'll never get you on the show. So uh, without without any further, hi, Carl. <laughs> good morning. Well, a good noon. Yeah, it's still morning here in Denver. Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, it's always, uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I say that sincerely, Carl actually did some, uh, some broadcasts with us uh, back in the early days of healthy indoors when we were using Uvu, I think, remember you were over at a conference, an ISIAC conference, right? Yes. Overseas. In Switzerland. Yeah. And, and we had an interesting conversation, which I won't go into about you floating down the Danube river. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> anyway okay so um so uh you know it's i'm really happy to have you on the show because you you haven't been on the new format show since we've uh, started doing right. this in the past right. uh, year and a half and uh and i'm even more excited to have you as a contributor to the magazine because the new column that you're about to do is just phenomenal uh and for, for those, I think most people in the industry are very familiar who you are, but there's probably people that will watch the show in, uh, in hindsight that won't actually, you know, be familiar with you. But Carl, you come from the experience of actually, you were a consumer with a, an IAQ problem, right? Yeah, I was. This is back in the 70s and early 80s. 
um, at that time I had my own company. It was a manufacturer's representative company selling electronics and electromechanical products to like IBM and storage technology, uh, digital, uh, all the, the big companies here in Colorado and the surrounding states. And I reached a point to where uh, I wasn't able to function very well anymore. Uh, the worst part of it was a uh, loss of short-term memory. And that I'd, 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 I'd answered the phone, for example, and it used to be, I, I had all the information in my head. This was before daytimers, okay? <laughs> so I, I had created my own system, color-coded system of hot topics, do it now, should have done it an hour ago, and so on. And I couldn't, I couldn't keep track of it uh, because like if I didn't act on a phone call, for example, immediately within two or three minutes, it was gone. And then it would suddenly come back five, six, seven days later with full immediacy. Uh, so it was, I had to get some help. And uh, as I started, it got, it got worse. I had to shut down the company and there's about two and a half years where I was fully disabled. If I wanted to do something, sometimes take a month or two to actually get it done. Uh, and then there's another 10 years before I could work full time and work productively. But figuring out what was going on because we're still in kind of the dark ages now, but we were in the dark, dark ages back then. So it, it, it was in the middle of that, that one of the many, many doctors that I went to um, asked me to start going to the, some, the homes of some of his patients. Because he said, you know, I was one of the sickest people he had worked with. I was only one of a couple that was recovering. I didn't feel like I was, but he said I was. Mm -hmm. So I started going out and I didn't know anything. I, I just basically, uh, I didn't have any training or technical knowledge. I started talking to them. Like a lot of people and, in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is, this is coming full circle back to the title of my new column and the show today as I started by sharing stories. Well, here's what happened to me. What happened to you? Yeah. And I started, I started picking up patterns of people in homes and it led then to a series of recommendations that I was making that was working. And it led to a book that I wrote in 1999 called starting points for a healthy habitat. If you go to amazon.com, you can see it, but it's not available. <laughs> it's okay. It, it sold out sold out years ago. And that got me involved then in the industry side, uh, first with IAQA and, and on and on and on. So I have my, I have a foot and on both sides of the fence here, but instead of straddling it and saying, well, here's one way or there's the other way it's how do I merge the two? How do I connect the two? Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. And, and it, it brings, you know, I, I believe probably that makes you somewhat unique in the industry. Right, because I think most people that are on the practitioner side in the IQ industry probably have stories, you know, that, that they've been, in, you know, they've had, they've experienced things, but maybe they haven't come from that place, you know, where, where you know, started totally as more of, you know, on the side of being somebody that's that's actually faced, uh, you know, this type of an indoor environmental crisis in their own life, you know, whereas um, I, I can honestly say I haven't, you know, with all my years, uh, you know, I've had some small issues, but I've never, you know, I've floods and things like that but um and i would say so so you, it gives you more of and this is one of the things that really impressed me about uh you early on years ago when i saw you doing presentations at industry events uh is that you would show this empathy towards 
the people that were experiencing these conditions, unlike other presenters and other practitioners in the industry that I ever, you know, I, I always noticed that was like a different take. You came, you're speaking from the heart more, I believe. Yeah. Uh, look with, uh, with, with academic studies, they remove the heart. Okay. Well, yeah, it's yeah. part of the scientific the process, right? Yeah. yeah. I, and I've talked to researchers over the years and I asked them when you talk about the indoor environment, uh, why do you remove the people? And they say, oh, yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah, why? Well, because it's anecdotal. It's subjective. It's not objective. It's not scientific. Mm -hmm. But what they're forgetting is that just about everything starts subjectively. When I ask them, why are you studying, say, uh, chemicals in the indoor environment? Why are you studying mold? Why are you studying uh, pet dander? It's that they have a personal experience. They have a reason for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and when you talk to scientists, it's what, what is your interest? How did you get interested in studying quantum mechanics of cats or something like that? Well, I just really like it. I have an interest in it. So it starts subjectively. The trick then is to make it objective. In other words, don't take the person out of it, but add the information that can be uh, object. Subjectivity is me and not anybody else, okay? That's what subjective is, mm -hmm. okay? So how do you make that objective? Well, you don't do it by just totally removing me or you removing you, but you look at what is the information that can be separate from that, that can be objective, and then can it apply to other people? And, what, and then what are the conditions and the limitations of that? And uh, how do you, how do you make it so that it has to say something other than just me? How do I talk about something that applies to you? And then mm -hmm. is verifiable independently. If you if somebody else can't repeat it, if nobody can repeat it, it's still subjective. That's okay. It's true for me. It's mm -hmm. not true for anybody right. else. But how do you make it repeatable for other people? That's the real key. And the victims of all the indoor environment don't haven't had the training or the understanding to do that and the people that are doing the research automatically remove the people from it so we've got this big gap here that needs to be bridged between research but but there's also the practitioner issue right carl because i mean let's let's yes. think about it um you know we go out i've been a consultant for years we go out and take samples for you know let, let's let's get into the mold uh, arena right let's say you yeah. go out and take spore trap samples and you come back with x number of some species of, uh, you know, some genus of spore, of uh, type of mold spores that are found at a certain level. What does that, what the hell does that really mean though for the individual? Is X, you know, like 300, uh, you know, spores per cubic meter of Aspergillus uh, penicillium like spores. What does that mean to the, the occupant? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and because we don't have, we don't have the, the leadership to handle this, what we have is the academic research and trying to set threshold limits on things and they can't do it for mold, for example, because for lots of reasons, but mold, look, mm. mold is a word that has no meaning anymore because it's used in so many ways. It's a taxonomic category, you know, it's a whole an entire kingdom, the fungi kingdom of taxonomy and mold also refers to 
what's on the bread, what's growing in the fridge. Mold is what's outside on the dead leaves. Mold is spores, mold is the growth, mold is the mycotoxins, mold is the enzymes, and mold is what is making me sick. If I have a, if I have a, if I have a reaction, it's mold proof. I know it. Okay. So, uh, okay. Yeah, mold, mold, mold is a word that it's, it's helpful in common usage, but not helpful in any other way. Makes sense. You know, and, and again, you, we, we picked on mold as the poster child here, but the reality is to try to get actual you know limit values on on the variety of things the soup that makes up our indoor environment right the chemicals all you know the off-gassing from everything all all the environmental stuff the airborne particulate you know the nuisance dust you mix that all together how in the world are you ever going to come up with limits because it it varies every environment everywhere you go at different times changes (laughs) this is a moving target absolutely now let me throw in another moving target and that's that people are individuals and they don't all react the same way at the same time to the same thing just think of the bell curve it's a distribution of individuals that react at different levels of whatever substance you're measuring so uh not everybody's going to react at the same time but yet everybody thinks that they should the common complaint is uh, in a family, one person, not always the mother, often, but it could be the father or the kids. One person is reacting and it's like, well, I don't react. So what's wrong with you? Can't be wrong with you. What is wrong with you? And it shifts over to the psychology and the right. relationship part of it. So back to what you were saying about the practitioner part. Yeah, there's a gulf, not only with the researchers uh, and medical clinicians, Okay, but there's a gulf between the field practitioner and the person that they're out to serve. Some of the presentations that you've seen, I've got the slide up there and I say the house didn't call for help. The person in the house called for help. But when we go out as a field practitioner, we only look at the house. We don't look at the person. So we just go out and like you said, we take some spore traps, we do some of this, we do whatever it is we do. And then we do something and then we go back and declare it good. And if the, our customer still complains or isn't satisfied, we point to all the legal boilerplate at the, in our work order yeah. in our contract. Okay. Which so is, it's nightmarish. Think that's it. a real problem, Carl. <laughs> it, 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 it's a real problem because this is why one of the reasons why the Facebook groups on mold, COVID even, is devolving into this now because they can't get the help and support and information that they that they need. Uh, the Facebook groups, there's Facebook group after Facebook group, and they're multiplying like rabbits because no, they can't get authoritative help. So they start helping themselves. So now it becomes a case of who speaks the loudest, which one, which of the group do I want to believe? There was just a post earlier this week where somebody asked just a simple general question about, well, what do I do? Uh, I want, I want to, I want to uh, move into a new house. What do I need to look for? What do I need to do? There were over a hundred responses in less than a day and they, you couldn't even group them. There was like five or six that was in a group. And not only was it diverse, but most of them were contradictory, but yet they pick they pick one of those as the truth for themselves. Right. Why? I think it's because 
there's somebody there that will validate it. Okay. I mean, but is that not, that's kind of a human nature, right? People sometimes don't seek facts and seek truth. They seek, uh, they seek validation of their, what they believe. Yeah, it's don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. Uh, the but the problem is there's there's not even a clear cut you know, there's not clear cut authoritative right you know cognizant authority information for a lot of this stuff i mean we we look because we yes. all the research and all of the all of the uh regulatory stuff is all based on individual constituents right i mean you know right. osha right. osha pals or acgih tlvs i mean they're still individual right. constituents they're right. they're typically designed for workplace setting right industrial setting eight hour setting you know, like a 30 year old healthy male i mean that's what most of this stuff is based on yeah so and and you just addressed one of the, the issues there a threshold limit value or a pe a permissible exposure level has to have boundaries it has to have limitations what are the conditions under which so it's typically a working, middle-class, white, male who's healthy. Right. Okay. Now, people that are in homes, that they they that not almost none of those really fit because they aren't there on a 40-hour week, an eight-hour day, 40-hour week. Okay. Uh, back in 2003, I believe it was. Uh, a lot of industry leaders like Richard Shaughnessy, uh, Brad Prezant, uh, David Miller, and Gene Cole had a conference in Las Vegas about mold and different building types. So what, is, what do you need to know about mold for hotels, uh, for gymnasiums, for schools, for offices, and for homes? And one of the conclusions that came out of that symposium, is about two days long, was the home is the most challenging because it'll have people in there that you regularly find in a nursing home or in a hospital. Uh, infants just born, mm -hmm. the elderly, people are immune compromised from organ transplants or cancer treatments. So it was the most complex because it was the most diverse. So, but yet nobody, instead of saying, hey, that's really interesting, that, that could be a challenge, let's tackle it. It's too complex. Get over here. The funding isn't for homes. The funding, you know, they can't put the boundaries or the, the box around it easily enough. So that's unfortunate, though, because we all live in a home. <laughs> Yeah, you know, every no matter, you know, no matter, because, you know, there's the concerns, let's say you're worried about healthcare, or you're worried about educational institutions or office environments, all of these people involved in all these other, you know, whether or these other work or educational or other environments, pretty much end up residing somewhere where they live, with the exception of people that are in skilled nursing facilities for extended care, but everybody else pretty much goes back to a place of residence at the end of right. a given right. day. There, there, I, I've done a couple of presentations on the the stubborn persistence of unhealthy homes. And that's a whole different topic. But I want to bring this now to today with COVID. And one of the things that have come out with COVID now is that people have to pay attention to their homes now. And researchers are starting to pay some attention, a little bit more attention. Number one is you're in your home during the total shutdown. You were in your home, not in the office. Sure. A okay. lot of people were spending 24 seven at their residence, which they didn't typically do. That's right. So the people, the, 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 the adults that worked 
out of the house weren't in the house all the time. So they maybe didn't experience some of those factors or they didn't notice it, but now they'll in the home all the time. And in addition to that, there's more people. So you have a higher occupancy, not necessarily a sufficient ventilation. And then uh, all the use of all the cleaning products, usually fragranced and all, all the uh, disinfectants that are used some of which have hormone emulators and carcinogens in them, okay? I mean, uh, CDC uh, for about five months kept coming up with a list of don't use this hand sanitizer, don't use that hand sanitizer. It's got toxic chemicals, it's got carcinogens in it. So even if people aren't aware, they'll now in the home, the focus is in the home and they're now starting to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's really it goes along with the liner notes we had for the show, right? Because we talked about how the terrain of indoor air quality has not improved over this past year with the pandemic. If anything, you, you know, your, your thoughts are it's, it's more confusing and riskier than it ever was, right? Um, which gets back. I, I want to ask you, so the, so the title for your upcoming column is Guardrails and Parachutes. And I want you to explain <laughs> what that means because, you know, people are going, okay, what? <laughs> Right. So what do you mean right. by guardrails and parachutes, Carl? Um, it, it, what, what I mean by it is what we just talked about, how do you find your way through it? Okay. It's like going down a mountain road. There's one of my favorite mountain passes here in Colorado. When you come into Aspen from the south, it's called Independence Pass. Anybody that's in Colorado or been on that will know what I mean. It's a really steep, windy, curvy road up the mountain. It goes for miles and the, there are no guardrails. One side of the road has about a one foot shoulder and that's the mountain. The other side of the two lane road is about a one foot shoulder. And that's a cliff anywhere from a couple of hundred to a thousand more feet. There's no guardrails. If you don't pay attention to what you're doing and if you don't know how to handle your car and if you don't have experience on curves and mountains and speed and brakes and that sort of thing, you can go right off. And if you go off, now you need a parachute. So the analogy is if you don't know what you're doing as a practitioner or as a, the general public, you can risk running right off the road and not even know it to the point where you need help. You need a parachute and you don't even know it. And then you'll met not not even with an ambulance at the bottom, but you just you just crash and you fail. The only thing protecting you is the legal boilerplate on your work order. Okay, um, that that isn't also where like the Donner Party went back in the eighteen hundreds, is it? No, that wasn't because of guardrails. That was because of a snowstorm and hunger. I'm just throwing that out. <laughs> they cannibalize themselves. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that's another thing to add maybe to, you know. <laughs> they needed a cook stove, not a parachute. No, they needed party. food is what they needed. They but needed but, but you, you, I think you're making a great point here because that's, again, and, and, and how, how do we, so how do we, how do we get that? to consumers and remember everybody's a consumer right i always like when you we say this term consumer people automatically go residential but that's not necessarily true because all commercial property owners building owners everybody's right. a consumer right you, you everybody is and uh, and, and i i think one of the things this industry tends to do 
and I've been guilty of it at times, and I'll show my hand too, is, you know, saying, oh, well, that, that's residential stuff. You know, we, we, just, we just do commercial. It's like, yeah, but everybody has a residential ex- aspect of their world. <laughs> well, until about five years ago, Ashray, for example, didn't recognize residential. It was all commercial buildings. It was only about five years ago that they created the residential committee, you know, and they're making good, good progress on that. But yeah, residential is kind of a throwaway and with some justification, because like I said, that that symposium 15, 16 years ago concluded it's the most challenging one with the most with the most complexity. But I want to go back to the again, the analogy of the, the guardrail again. If not just a consumer or the general public doesn't know what they're doing and go off the cliff and now they're in trouble, the practitioners uh, can do that too. And by practitioners, I've discovered recently that there's a couple of different practitioners. For example, you mentioned I was vice president of practice for uh, ISIAC a number of years ago. And it was, uh, there was a confusion there about what practice was. And they said, well, we're researchers, well, academic engineers and other researchers. And in our main uh, journal, Indoor Air, we have a section of application. How could this be applied? And so that, that's satisfactory. And when I brought in ideas and I had a committee of academics even that said, we need to get research to practice. It wasn't greeted with open arms. And it took me all these years to figure out why. I'm talking about a different kind of practice. I'm talking about a field practitioner, not someone who takes research right. and applies it, but Cliff Zlotnick is the one that helped me out on this. He said that he used the analogy of uh, in medicine, you've got medical research and then you've got the clinical application, the doctor with the patient. And then you've got the emergency medical technician. Us as field practitioners are like the EMT. We get a call, we go out, we don't know what's there. We have to figure out what's there first and then figure out what kind of science or research may be applicable. But the starting point is very, very different. And the end point uh, is very, very different. There's actually a term for this now called crisis science. There's a, actually a paper on this out there now that I can make available to anyone that wants it called crisis science. You go out and you have to figure out what's there before you can apply anything. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a, a difference, particularly at the ISEAC conference coming up, Healthy Buildings 2021. I'll get the plug in there in November in Honolulu. Oh, we're going to have one on it too. So yeah, definitely you know, there's lots of plugs. <laughs> yeah. So it's, a. Uh, uh, they have some field practitioners with, that are going to do presentations. There's going to be research practitioners and then there's going to be the academic researchers. And the hope is by, by getting them together in one place at one time, they can maybe start talking to each other. Well, conceptually, that, that, that's a great thought. And I think, you know, it's long overdue. So that, that's super important. Um, one of the things I, I want to uh, just mention right now, we're almost coming to the halfway point of the show. Yeah. So we uh, will be taking uh, questions from our live virtual studio audience. Those of you who were actually in the Zoom meeting with Carl and I um, will give you the opportunity. You can use go to the reactions button on the bottom of your menu on the bottom right side and click raise your hand. Uh, Susan Valenti is sitting in the moderation uh, chat area. Um, she's the uh, 
editor of Healthy Indoors Magazine. She's our moderator for the show. So she'll recognize your question, funnel it over to us, and we can actually invite you to turn on your camera. You can ask the question and be on air. Also, we have people watching the show from a lot of other portals, uh, not the least of which is our online global community. So if you're there, we have a live chat function in that. It's, that's, again, outside of those of you in the virtual studio. Uh, so people anywhere in the world can also be commenting on that. And uh, if we see uh, any pertinent questions come up in that chat, we'll also funnel it through. So that, that was long-winded. Um, well, you know, of some of the notes we talked about for this show, Carl, you, 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 and this might be for a future show, but I, I just want to dabble on it because I think it's kind of important. Uh, we're talking about communication and terminology, you know, some of the magic marketing words, right? You talk about, right. you know, those, yeah. because there's, and I've, I've been a big critic of a lot of this too, the, you know, the hype, the, all the hyperbole, the, you know, the, the scare tactics, we're rampant with that in this industry, are we not? Oh, yeah. And it's getting worse. Uh, the, the, here, here's the, here's the, I'll back up a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, to explain it. When HEPA filters came out, that was a big deal because until then they didn't have HEPA filters that were affordable, but you can get 99.97% of 0.3 microns. Everybody wanted that. So people started, as it became available, air, air cleaner companies started hyping HEPA filters. We have HEPA filtration. Then everybody, then as more people had HEPA filters, now how do you distinguish yourself competitively from everybody else? So now I've got true HEPA. Now I've got my, I can go down to Real HEPA. microns. I can remove particles as small as, which is not the same as removing particles at that. Okay. So now it devolved okay. into all this different way. Now we got hospital grade HEPA filters. We got all kinds of HEPA this and HEPA that. And you know what? There's only three or four manufacturers of HEPA filters anyway. So they're all the same because HEPA is not a brand. It is right. a specification. Okay. So if it meets that specification and can truly be called qualify as HEPA, it's going to function just like everything else. Now right. inside the equipment, it may vary, but a HEPA filter is a HEPA filter. If it's so a HEPA filter, all kinds of magical marketing words to say, buy my HEPA filter instead of somebody else's. But and a, and a distinction to make here, too, is I think a lot of consumers are really don't understand this, is that the 0.3 micron, the reason that that's the, that's the challenge point, because that's the most challenging particulate size for an impaction filter, the 0.3 micron. That's why that's the standard to get to 97.97. And some people, I think there's this misconception. Well, if it's smaller than 0.3 micron, the HEPA filter doesn't catch it. And that's total nonsense. Of course it does. It actually smaller than 0.3 micron is more effectively captured as is larger. Exactly. And this is how hard it is to conceive of. Uh, back when I was president of the Indoor Air Quality Association, we had a research committee uh, that was trying to measure the effect of HEPA filters in the device. Okay. And how do you do that? And uh, Wayne Baker is the one that came up with this. He said, and he gave us the link for it. He said, that exactly what you said is 0.3 microns is not the endpoint, the smallest particle. It's the MPPS, most penetrating particle size. And at that time, they could only measure down to 0.1, and it was like 99.99. You know, it, it was four log reduction at below 0.3. 
And it was so hard for us to wrap our head around mm -hmm. it that it took quite a while to really recognize that. And when I started promoting that to other people, I got a lot of pushback. No, you're wrong. That can't be right. You know, so it, it, it is difficult to, to understand. Um, and when, what was really interesting was when the committee went to some of the manufacturers of air cleaners because they wanted to use their equipment, you know, in the study, the general response was, oh, yeah, we know that. Well, why, why, why don't you say it? Because it's too complex. It's, it's yeah, so let, let's let's occlude the, the facts and make it more complicated. And, and the and the point I know you're going to go here in a second is that that with a HEPA filter, the HEPA filter is not the end all. I mean, yes, if you have a HEPA filter, then it should meet that criteria. But it, it it's a total device efficiency. It's a cabinet efficiency. It's a, That's if right. you have bypass, you know, the best HEPA, you know, the, a perfect HEPA filter that would pass a DOP test and everything in a cabinet with leakage around it or damage to the filter, right. uh, it's not, you're not getting the HEPA efficiency that you believe you're getting. And there's so many pieces of equipment out there that may use true HEPA filter, you know, actually HEPA filters in their devices, but their devices won't perform as a HEPA device because there's leakage or just design flaws in the things. Well, in fact, again, with through IAQA, uh, when the um, EPA came out with their uh, lead RRP new specifications, uh, uh, restoration, removal, and painting, I think that's what it was called, RRP, and they mm -hmm. did it train. So they had a specification in there for HEPA vacuums and how to clean up lead-based paint dust, okay? Well, they had, they wrote it as a specification that wouldn't work. And we found out that when they had the HEPA vacuum that was qualified for this uh, verification, it was the lousiest one out there. So when we did some more research, we found out there was basically no HEPA vacuums. This is what, 10 years ago or so, uh, that could meet that was even close to the HEPA specification. Okay. And so you're talking as far as commercial VAX or consumer VAX? Uh, both. Okay. Because of the gasket around it, it wasn't properly seated and sealed like you were just saying. So uh, again, this isn't just a problem for consumers. This is a problem for uh, practitioners and field practitioners. And it's a problem for equipment companies because they say something and our own brain fills in the gaps and our magical marketing words, the magical, because they've learned how, it used to be called Madison Avenue back in the days of early television. I'm giving away my age here. Yeah, Mad Men. Yeah, yeah Mad Men. So it was, uh, we, we let them fill in the gaps. So one of my favorite ones is this, it's not a HEPA filter anymore. It's one of these ozone hydroxyl things that have snow verification, independent verification by anyone anywhere. But it's like, well, this who studied at this university, this was uh, based on research from NASA. And we've got five studies over here. And one of them even put up a chart showing that VOCs would go down to zero. What they didn't tell you is that that was in a, an environmental chamber, not a house or a, a, a real real use, okay? And it was starting with the fixed amount. It had no applicability or relevance to the outside the world, outside of the lab. Mm -hmm. But people buy the, on that and say, oh, well, I've got validation. 
Now, in the five, six years that I've been involved in various Facebook groups, when I run into that, I say, you know, here's the facts that we know. And if anybody has anything to refute what I said, that's in a third party independent study, get to post it. Nobody posts it. Nobody well, ever has. But that's one of the problems with well, and there's two factors there, right? A lot of the research, uh, the research that you know that manufacturers may be posting is stuff that they commissioned. So is it totally right. third party unbiased research? Probably not, you know, necessarily. I mean, because they they probably define the parameters of what they're going to test to. And quite frankly, you know, if you define parameters a certain way, you, I, I say this with air testing. If you you want to go out and do, uh, you know, post. Uh, verification on a mold remediation project and you use air sampling god forbid that's the only way you do it but let's say you did right, right. You, you can skew that whatever direction you want do you want them to pass or fail based on how you take your sample the duration where you locate your collection device da 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 da, da. you can totally you know so and that can be done with any type of study right i mean how you set up the parameters you can kind of manipulate the outcome of almost any research if you wanted to that's right so here's a guardrail for that okay okay um after, after the inspector, hopefully, or if you use a contractor, two of them, you know, to compete against each other to compare. If you're going to do testing, you have to put in your report what you are testing for and why and which tests you are using. There's over 16 combinations. I've got a, I've got a chart that I developed on that. There's over 16 combinations of testing. And none of them give you the same information. They're For mold, you're talking about again, back with just with mold, in particular. Just with mold, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're all accurate for the sample that the lab received. None of them are accurate for whether you're safe or not, because they don't even apply to it. First, of well, all. they're environmental samples. They have nothing to do with medical correlation. I mean, that's that's been my complaint since the beginning in this industry. I, I'm uncomfortable right. with what we do because right. we don't have data that's a. Right. correlates directly to physiological outcomes. So here's the guardrail. First of all, whether you do all the preliminary things that you need to do to identify the problem and identify if testing's needed and which test, then you put in your report how to interpret the results. And most people say, well, I don't know what the results are. How can I interpret the results? But you can do, like medical labs do, here's a range. If your cholesterol is below a certain value, you'll okay. If it's above a certain value, you need some uh, further medical investigation. In general, though, it, there's still a caveat there. It's in general. It's still it's yeah, still it's a, in general. Yeah, but we don't even have that. I have never seen a report yet. I haven't seen them all, but I've seen lots and lots of them. I've never seen a report yet to say, okay, with this sample, when method in this location. If it's above a certain level, I consider that a problem. And based on your individual profile of susceptibility and severity of reactions, this is a problem for you. In other words, if it is above a certain range, if it's a certain set of conditions, I consider that a problem. If it's not, I don't. Post-remediation verification, PRV, how clean do you have to get it? Say, okay, I'm going to sample after PRV, whether spore trap or surface or whatever, uh, disturbed air or not disturbed air. Uh, if it's X, it fails. If it's not X, it passes. That's the guardrail because then the people that dispute it 
like landlords and uh, property managers and uh, attorneys for the defense and so forth, they, 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 can, they can no longer say, well, those are bad results or those results aren't, uh, aren't, aren't good or bad. They have to go back and look at your methodology. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, though. Okay. Who delineates what, what, what those ranges are? Because, because that seems like, first of all, it's, it's getting dangerously close to medical uh, uh, opinions. You know, you're saying, is that going to be, is that going to medically affect you? Right. Cause we're talking about, I mean, that's what the implication is. There is health, right? This is, right. this is, this is healthy. This isn't now us as environmental practitioners, right. environmental consultants, environmental contractors, um, we're really not qualified to make any judgments based on how somebody's going to react from a health perspective based on environmental parameters that we're sampling, right? We have anecdotally, we know that when you're in these ranges, you know, I mean, we all know that, right? There's certain ranges you see, whoa, that's really atypical. And people usually don't have a good situation there, but how, who's going to define that? Okay. So that's another show. That's another I know, show. but okay. All right. It will be another show because, <laughs> because, that, because that's, they're, 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 that's a dicey a conversation, that, it, Carl. <laughs> yeah. There's a way to do it. And I've been doing it for 30 years. Okay. And you know what? You, we're going to have you back just to have that too. Just because I, okay. I have to have because that conversation. We aren't making a medical diagnosis. It comes back to um, the, the person, like I said at the beginning, the house didn't call. The person called, I'm sick in my house. Something is going on. If nothing else, it's after I do the remediation, I don't react any longer. Okay. So there's even a citation for it. Go to bioaerosols, 1999, section 15.5, okay? Section 15.5 says, the ultimate criteria for successful bioremediation is that occupant can re-enter without a reaction or complaint. That's your criteria there. Well, yeah, but that's, that's a different criteria, Carl. You know, no, I mean, that, that's because because that's I mean, that's using that's using the occupant as a canary, which, quite frankly, is the most accurate way to decide if somebody's OK in an environment is, is go in there and tell me, are you OK? Yeah, that is. <laughs> There's no sample that tells you if you're going to be OK. The occupant is there to begin with. The occupant is using themselves as a canary. They don't call in and say uh, a mold test is too high. It's I'm sick. I don't feel good. Right. OK. So the, it's, it's relying on what's available and it's subjective information, anecdotal, but there are ways to use subjective and anecdotal information. And I, 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 there's a way to do that. I can go into it later. You just have to accept my word for it right now. But there is a way to at least do it as a screening. There's a way to at least do it as a, an approach to it rather than just ignore the person, invalidate them and say, my sample, my test says it's okay, so pay me. Okay, that's reasonable. I have to make a comment. So over on the Healthy Indoors Global yeah. Community, we got a chat comment. Uh, it's from our illustrious friend, Jack Springston. Yeah. Uh, okay. And he's, you know, what, my comment about that, the point, 0 0.3 micron is the hardest one to actually penetrate. Right. Uh, his comment is actually, Bob, it isn't. The most penetrative size particle is around 0.2 micron. So, and, and he supports it with a, with a link to a study. So I, I'll post that uh, with the show notes. <laughs> so well, thanks, Jack. Well, the range. It's actually like about roughly just under to just over 0.3. It's not 0.3 exactly. But, it's like but the, conce the concept here is 0.3 was selected as a, a good representative thing of whether, you know, that's still a hard range to sample. And I, I think it's, we had limited. Point. 
Yeah, but you know he's he's got me there. Uh, Susan Valenti has a question. Well, she had a question hand up. Susan, are, are you uh, are you going to jump on? Yeah, I'll jump on. Okay. You know, um, first of all, Carl, we met what in ninety three, ninety four. When did we uh, meet? About that. Yeah. About that. You know, and you've been like, um, you've been basically making me making me question everything about what I do ever since. Um, oh no! Oh, good. <laughs> no, you know what? Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a very interesting conversation. Just you know, just a couple of days ago. Joe Allen Harvard posted something on LinkedIn and the you know, I'm going to paraphrase the headline because I don't remember the exact headline, but it said something like businesses, no, excuse me, buildings can solve COVID-19 problems. So my question to you is, is this, you know, is that kind of bad marketing, um, you know, on, you know, and again, I don't know if he wrote the headline or if he, or if he just, you know, got that from someone at Harvard, but like, you know, you know, but again, can buildings solve COVID-19 or can people in buildings solve COVID-19? Okay. Good question. My first, my first reaction though, is you don't have that awful blue background that Bob does. So I don't have that awful glare on my glasses. No, it's not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. I'm some, helping people you call it, some people would call it production value, Carl, but you know, that's right. <laughs> you know, studio okay. lighting, studio sound, you know, but yeah, I have okay. no production value here. So well, that's okay. And it's not an ugly or bad one, uh, except for my glare, but back to your, 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 your question, Susan. Yeah. I saw that comment and while I think it's overstated, um, I, I would hope I haven't read it, but I would hope that he goes on then to explain that buildings can increase the risk of infection from lack of ventilation and overcrowding and other factors, but it could also reduce the risk of infection by not overcrowding and with proper, you know, effective ventilation and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I've had some recent training on um, uh, uh, promotion and media and that sort of thing. And what they really promote is make a catchy statement up front. It's like a headline, but the, other than just make stuff up, you have to verify it. You have to explain it. It's followed by another statement and then the explanation, but you got to get that. You got to get their attention first. So with his, it's so outrageous that people are going to have a reaction similar to yours of, oh, that's really difficult. I don't think so. Hopefully some people say, tell me more. So that's the value of that. That's very different than saying that buy my air cleaner or buy my chemical or buy my product or service and that that solves something. Warning, your home and office may contain high levels of deadly mold. Yes. Thank you. That was totally unrehearsed. What we do here. Yeah, so does that answer your question, Susan? Um, kind of, you know, you know, you know, you know, but again, I mean, I just wonder why people take the people out of it as in it, you know, and like, you know, and put, you know, and put like, oh, the building can, you know, can solve this problem when, I mean, really, can the building solve the problem or is the people going to solve the problem? 
Well, the building can be a, become a tool and become a very valuable tool because it can, it can be a cause or contribute mm -hmm. to it. The other part of this that you're getting to is there's no one thing about it. It's a combination of things. It's the people and the building and the virus and the ventilation and the genetics of the people and the history of previous exposure and the outdoor ambient environment and how many people come into that office building with perfume, okay, or some kind of fragrance uh, the, with the cold or with the virus. What is lacking in all this is an ability to take a complex set of uh, dynamical systems and relate them in a way that is useful. And that's where people come in. Pe you know, the National Center for Healthy Housing uh, had their uh, healthy home specialist course. And uh, Kevin Kennedy in particular was the first one that started promoting this. It's uh, uh, homes are systems that begin with people. People are part of the system and it ends with people. If you don't include the, the people as part of this complex dynamical meta system, yeah. you can make some headway, you can make some changes, but you aren't getting down to the core fundamental, which is a person called for help. And until that person's issues are addressed and hopefully either fixed or made better, then you have not addressed the issue. The work order for practitioners um, eliminates that person with their, with their legal caveats and their boilerplate. So mm -hmm. that now, whether the person is helped or not, they've met their requirements and they can take it into any court and the judge will insist that they need to get paid and that they filled the terms, fulfilled the terms of the contract. Again, the person is taken out of it. Well, I mean, yeah. all vacant buildings are inherently healthy, are they not? Because buildings are inanimate objects. They don't get sick. <laughs> well, yeah. But, and if you want to really want to get down to it, that changing environment in that unoccupied building is healthy for something. It's healthy for the mold and bacteria that are thriving now. It's healthy for the rodents and the insects that got in. Or it's healthy for the moose or the possum or the skunk that, that uh, infiltrated in it. So it's the, the uh, environment, the habitat that is most conducive to the life form that's in there. We want houses, we assume houses and offices are conducive to the sustainability and the uh, product, productivity of the occupant that's a human and not the insects and rodents and the mold and the bacteria and the actinomycetes and everything else. So Terry Sofer, uh, I know he has a Thank question. You, Terry. He's, he's in here. Terry Sofer. Hi, Carl. It's always Hi. wonderful to uh, hear and, in this case, see you uh, after <laughs> we've you. both uh, tried at various points to help educate and improve information for some of those uh, Facebook groups of people That's that right. are toxified by mold. Right. You've been a, you've been a real champion there. Thank you. Um, Carl, I'm intrigued by your, uh, and looking forward to uh, understanding more your concept of guardrails and parachutes. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to be provocative uh, in raising uh, a point here about IAQ standards. Good. Emerging medical genetics science in particular is beginning to show that not only are there personal genetic differences 
but can be significant differences person by person on what genes are, quote, turned on or turned off or impaired partially in their functioning. Um, and that those genes can have a major effect on the susceptibility of a person to a variety of illnesses or diseases. Um, so if that medical science um, is valid, uh, in light of that, how can any IAQ standard be used to determine or say what is healthy or unhealthy in a building for a particular occupant? That's a particularly interesting and challenging question because it comes down to what a standard is. If it's a threshold limit value, permissible exposure level, something that is regulatory, they have to have a number. They have to have a sharp line of demarcation. But that doesn't really exist in, in real life. You have to have some kind of a range, okay? And the way around that is what procedural standards can't do, and that is be a results or a process standard. In other words, what are the various ways that you can make some sort of improvement and make that kind of measurement rather than having a hard and fast number? Okay. Numbers are easy. And I'm, I'm gonna quickly add one other point. Uh, I, I'm the, the current chair of an ASHRAE committee called uh, environmental influences affecting an acceptable indoor environment. And we started investigating three years ago, the word health. And one of the things that one of our uh, uh, committee members came up with who's involved in health and safety and requirements and so forth. He went out to a group of his colleagues and he said, tell me about safety and health. So what is safety and what is health? And uh, without exception, they all came back and said, well, we've got safety requirements, but we don't have any health requirements. So Fred asked them, well, then why do you have health in there? And they said, because it sounds good. Great. We want safety and health. And there's no definition for health other than 1948 WHO. So, but yet look at all, you can look at the ASHRAE handbooks who were involved in revising some of those. Health is all over the place. Look at legislation. Look at standards. It's all about health, but there's no way to determine whether it's actually helping, promoting, or is neutral to health. Words everywhere. <laughs> hey, my book in 1999, I, it showed- I'm feeling very troubled myself. I'm uncomfortable house. now. I want to change the graphic, Carl. <laughs> well, <laughs> well <laughs> blame it on Terry. <laughs> No, well, that's a real issue, Terry. Well, the, uh, the kind of thing that really bothers me is that uh, talking about mold, um, when the typical uh, uh, industrial hygienist uh, or IAQ uh, uh, investigator who uh, takes uh, samples aside from all the issues of, of uh, whether one sample is valid and so forth. Uh, and especially when they only look at spores as opposed to uh, particles. Um, but uh, when they then take a so-called reference 
measurement to outdoor spore counts and either imply or explicitly state at some point that because the indoor um, count that they got was substantially lower than the outdoor count, uh, they imply or explicitly state it's that the home therefore is healthy with regard to um, mold. Uh, and based on all the research studies that I've read, which I consider to be indicative, if not final scientific proof, um, it doesn't necessarily take very many uh, mycotoxic mold uh, particles to potentially present a health problem for a particular person. That's, right. the kind so of, the, that's an example of the kind of standard, if you will, that I'm talking about that, that I think are totally misleading. So there are about five different subjects or topics in what you said, which is an accurate statement, by the way, in my opinion, uh, that we have to identify, unpack, get a clear definition, and then reassemble in a way that makes sense, that can be actually operationalizable and usable. Uh, but the first comment I'm going to make is uh, my experience with industrial hygiene, which has affected a lot of field practitioners in mold and water damage and fire and stuff like IAQA, IICRC, uh, RIA, and similar organizations, NORMI, et cetera, is they test first and we've got it backwards. How do you know what to test for? You need, and, and there's two, two arguments here. One is you need the on-site inspection to identify conditions and then determine which ones are, can be a problem and which conditions are okay. And to see what questions need to be answered before you can determine what to test, how to test and the location of the sample. The other what? argument, though, is that anybody like you and, other, and others with any experience know that if you conduct that inspection, nine times out of 10, you find the problem. You don't need to test other than maybe to confirm something. But the visual inspection of walking through and knowing with building science and experience, moisture, migration, airflow patterns, material, science, that sort of thing, you can identify at least up front what the where you need further investigation. Well, Scott Armour got an need, interesting. You need to test later. Scott Armour has an interesting perspective on that. He was on a few weeks ago, and you know his thing is, the only you know if if your test results aren't going to affect one way or the other what your recommendations or what you know what the prescriptive actions will be. Why are you taking tests? Because if the test That's is right. not going to support something. You know, and I totally agree with that. But even more so, you know, the whole premise of testing without, you know, and, and even just doing the visual, I, I think the on-site assessment is paramount, but also what's paramount is the occupant, in, you know, the, the dialogue that you have with the occupant. 
that conversation or occupants. You know, I mean, you have to do interviews. I mean, you, honestly, this is we're not worried about the damn building. We're worried about what's happening to the occupants. And I, it amazes me when you know I'll have commercial clients. They don't want me to ever talk to you know. I'll, I'll go on a consulting job. And they don't want me to speak to the you know to the employees there. It's like, well, we have to speak to the employees. You know, they want you to sneak in after hours and do some testing. It's like, what does that mean? That I need to understand, you know, what people are, what they're experiencing. It's going to help me formulate what, how I look at things. Yeah, exactly. And I want to go back to, to the very beginning when I didn't even know anything about this other than my own experience. I sat down and I talked to people. I asked questions. We compared stories. And that is what opened the door to all of this. Okay. And I, I agree with what Scott is, uh, uh, Armour is saying in that if you don't know, well, I, and connect it with what I just said a little bit ago about testing. If you don't know what re- type of results, what the results will mean, then why are you testing? You let people fill in the blanks. You know, it's confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. You get the results and then determine what it means. Well, it means whatever it is, uh, is it meaningful for you that day? If you're the occupant, it's bad. If you're the, if you're the, uh, the landlord or property manager, it's okay. Because you have no criteria by which to judge the results. So you have to establish that criteria for the results. And that's the other side of saying what Scott is saying. If you if you if it doesn't answer a question, why are you testing? The the flip side of that is what are you looking for uh, in a test, and can it be found any other? And way? why? Yes. <laughs> More importantly, it's like it's like uh, a Jeff Goldblum in the original Jurassic Park. They, they were too busy asking the question of you know if we can do this, and rather than if we should. <laughs> You know, I mean, right. Right. Honestly, like if if it's not going to do something meaningful, why are you why are you doing analytical work? You know, I mean, I'm going to get testing. We get convoluted too with the word testing because there's you know, there's testing can be things that require analytical results at a laboratory. and And but I look at testing, you know, taking readings. There's there's you know, environmental parameters we read in real time, right? Laser particle counts, temperature, relative right. humidity, any number of other things. There's a lot of devices that can read real time, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, you know, and go down the list that we can read in real time. Right. But see, that's more of a diagnostic tool that you use in real time. To me, I think you should always use those tools as an, in an investigation. That's right. Right. But, but what we're talking about, I think what we want to qualify is we're talking about when you're taking samples and sending them off to a lab. Well, Yes. Yes. So testing is another one of those words that has so many meanings. It's like it, your mold definition. Right. So here's a quick analogy or a quick, a very quick comparison. Uh, it, it doesn't sound applicable at first, but you know, I'll, I'll bring it back. When you go to functional medicine, nu- uh, nutritional doctors and nutrition and chiropractors and this sort of thing, they, they, they give you lots of pills to take. Their diagnosis and even regular doctors, what's the prescription drug? Okay, they don't make money off of it like the others do, but the their main profit center is what the, the product they can sell. The main uh, major pro- profit center for inspections is sampling. 
I, I know I went through it. The year that I made the most money just all by myself was the year that I sampled, 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 sampled. Okay. I made a ton of money. And what I found from all that sampling, it was that there was nothing consistent in it. It didn't really help. That could be reflective of your sampling protocols too. And just point that I, out. I combined a lot there of- There could be a bias the there, right? other part yes. I want to bring in for contractors is what do they sell? They sell- chemicals primarily they sell not necessarily the physical removal of mold and dampness they sell a chemical or a gas approach using ozone and hydroxyls and fogging and misting and essential oils and things like that look at not just follow the money look at how they make their money and the and with the more misinformation that we have the more this proliferates into things that's not necessarily as needed and a lot of things that aren't even effective. And those same things can actually have a harmful effect on the customer. I mean, that could be argued with things outside of the indoor environmental industry too, just in consumerism in general, but um, you're right. You're right. I mean, I I think this, it, there is, there's a problem there. I mean, there's, there's, because the end, the end result is consumers both residential and even commercial consumers, right? You know, we tend to think commercial consumers are, have such high prowess on this, but they really don't. Facility managers, unless they've spent a lot of time to educate themselves on this, don't necessarily know that much more than a general consumer about indoor air quality. Maybe a little more about ventilation, but that's probably where it ends. So the reality is they're not making informed purchase decisions, right? They're, they're looking at marketing materials and that's how they're, they're making decisions on emotion. Yeah. An, we need to get back to principles that have a factual basis, start with the principles and then you can go in with the application. What we're doing now is, oh, I have, I look back on my experience with just test instruments and ultraviolet lights to find pet urine and whatever, you know. What I had the gadget of the six months, the gadget of the year. And it was like, oh, I can find this, I can find that. And then six months, a year later, I'm not using it anymore. I'm using something else. So it's what is really needed. And to get to that point, you have to go back to the principles, the essentials, the fact-based information on how do things operate. And once you, once you cut that umbilical cord, so to speak, you'll out floating in outer space on your own and you can come up with anything that you want as long as you can convince someone and then your justification becomes, this is how I make my money. If I stop doing what I'm doing, I go out of business. Well, yes, that's a serious concern, but maybe you're in the wrong business. Or or at least you're doing in your, you're in the business doing it the wrong way. I mean, the the number one diagnostic tool, if you're a practitioner consultant out in the field should be this device. That's right. Uh, honestly, and so, it and it includes the eyes, the nose, and and very importantly, the ears. You know, for what people are telling you and what you you know. Yeah, there are some studies out there now. A couple of them that I'm involved with that uh, are getting at the response of the person. Okay, and making connections to medical, not just environmental or the subjective part of it, but also uh, to medical. Um, it's a, some is very preliminary. Uh, one has been released on uh, 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 one of the pre-release websites, you know, before peer review. And there's a, there are a couple of more I'm familiar with that are in the process of peer review. 
so there is a, there is movement in this direction. And I kind of like to sum up all the complexity and some of the uncertainty or controversy or doubt or, or whatever by saying, what COVID has shown us is how the indoor environment is more important than ever. Because once COVID is over, and it's not, the Delta variants out there, and I just saw there's another one now that's just been identified beyond Delta. They don't know anything about it, but it's gonna be with us a long time. And we have to pay more attention to our environment, our indoor environment overall, homes in particular, it's not going to go away. And with the climate changing, with the wildfires, with the flooding, the increased temperatures like in the Northwest, Yesterday, we hit 100 degrees or more in Denver for the first for five days so far this summer. We set an all-time record yesterday for that date. Things are changing, and we have to keep up with it. And it's, it's changing, and it's important because of people, not the equipment, not the house, not the industry, not the society. It comes back to people in general and then individuals specifically. We need to be moving forward in that direction in all areas. That's uh, super valid points. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity, you know, because you, you mentioned it earlier. So uh, Healthy Buildings America 2021 um, is uh, the uh, conference that Carl was referencing earlier. It's uh, sponsored by ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And it's being hosted out in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9th through 11th by Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Um, and the premise, you know, and the whole concept of this conference is bridging the gap between research and practice. So unlike previous ISIAC conferences, which are really pretty much academia focused, this event is actually uh, aimed at bringing the research and the field practitioner communities together uh, to, you know, again, you know, we're, we're coming off or we're, we're still involved in a, a global pandemic, but certainly that's illustrated the point that Carl was just making a few minutes ago, that it's very important for us to be fo focused on the indoor environment. And you can learn more about this, um, uh, hb2021-america.org. That's where you can uh, register. Um, we're we're here with Healthy Indoors. We're a media partner for the, for the event. Um, you know, we're wholeheartedly supporting it. Carl, I'm assuming you're probably going, uh, did you, you must've put abstracts in out there, right? How could yeah, you not? Uh, well, in fact, uh, the, I'm, the, I'm the director of Healthy Homes at Hayward Healthy Home Institute. And we, and Hayward you're a, Store, you're a media, and we, are your partner as well, a sponsor. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll a platinum sponsor mm -hmm. of it. And uh, I have a, I'll have a 90 minute workshop out there on how we at Hayward um, dealt with this issue of complexity and how to bridge the gaps of different systems. So that, that how we did that uh, in, in, in uh, basically three different ways, I think might be informative uh, uh, to people. It is a face-to-face -face conference. So uh, get your plans to come to Honolulu. Yeah, it's a great it's a great uh, excuse to actually get a trip to Hawaii, too. I mean, it, you know, uh, should be fantastic content, opportunity to meet with people. And, you know, it's not really a bad place to be in November. Well, yeah. And the hotels, they've got a really good rate on hotels. So as low as like mm -hmm. 150. Uh, I think a it's night. a little more, but it's still pretty low. It's lower than you'd normally go. Most conventions now you're looking at 
the high 200 to 300 dollars to go to a convention i believe it's like 180 it's, it's still it's, it's surprisingly affordable because that was my first okay. comment when i heard about it. i was like oh my god who's going who's going out to hawaii it's going to cost a gazillion dollars but actually the airfare is pretty good and the hotel costs are pretty low and the, right. the event and is hawaii the cost of any- wants people to come in they've lifted the quarantine requirement mm-hmm. so they want people to come in and then we have the good negotiators at isiac so there's there an go. opportunity for practitioners, like a lot of people on the show, I look at the, the names and recognize a lot of the names and uh, know other people. It's a great opportunity to hear what academics are saying, what practitioners, what the applications are, and then the field practitioners also. Hopefully, it'll raise enough questions and enough interest that we can get a conversation going. Yeah. So, Carl, closing thoughts, because we're over time. As usual, the show always runs a little longer than 60 minutes, uh, but we really appreciate our audience that hangs in there with us. Well, closing thoughts is I want to just thank you for pushing me and being persistent to get me involved. As you said earlier, you've been wanting me to write a column for quite a number of times. It's been a long time since the Indoor Environment Connections. I wrote for that for, uh, I think it was 18 or 19 years. And Susan is the one that got me started in that, to be quite honest. But when that publication went out, I didn't have a platform or a, uh, a way to uh, communicate. And uh, you, you're providing that now. Uh, I have some. Well, we've been plans. providing it for eight years, Carl. But that, that's an, that's another point. <laughs> for eight years, <laughs> it's our eighth anniversary in, in two weeks. Well, Actually, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to see if you could get the bugs worked out and if you would I, I get it. I get, you, wanted to, you wanted to see if we were for real, right? <laughs> I wanted to see if you were for real. Right, right. But anyway, so thank you. I really appreciate it. There's lots to talk about. I have, as you said earlier at the beginning, I have a little different way of approaching it. And it's from with a inclusion of people and individuals. So anybody that wants to know more about that, uh, hopefully they'll tune in to more of your shows here and we'll read my column. Yeah, look, looking forward to having you, uh, you know, having you do that. I, I just, I think it's going to be a fabulous column. It's going to be great for both industry readers as well as uh, you know, consumers that read the publication. So uh, many of you are probably watching the show today over on the Healthy Indoors online uh, global community, which is our, our new platform. Uh, it's totally indoor environmental centric. Um, this is a really, really cool thing. If you haven't checked it out, you need to check it out. Um, you, you go to uh, global.healthyindoors.com. That'll get gateway you into the public areas of the community. Everything with an orange uh, tri- uh, little diamond on the side is totally public if publicly available even if you're not a member uh so that's all the shows uh, both our content and a lot of other uh, trusted uh content providers uh but you're also able to uh, get a free uh a free membership to the thing so it's like this is this is an open platform uh that we're promoting around the planet to get like-minded people and people with an interest in indoor environmental and sustainability topics to actually get you in there and give you the opportunity to uh network you know, it, it, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, we talk about it having all this content, but that's really not the most important part that we view the of, of this new platform. And sure, it's great content, but it's also an opportunity for you to meet and network with people from your industry, other industries around the planet. I mean, it's this is really going to be a unique opportunity. 
you know, much more than much more than just some content provider. Um, of course, our home base is still healthyindoors.com, which is where you'll find uh, our back issues of the magazine, uh, our shows, uh, all of our posts. Uh, you know, that's still that's still our home repository. But we are keeping a lot of that content over or moving that content now over to the community as well. So the community will in the future become kind of more of that. So uh, there, that's that's the end of my plugs for the day. <laughs> so Carl, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to all of you who joined us in the live virtual studio audience today. You were a little quiet, guys, but that's okay. You know, you stay young around. Um, and everybody who watched us on all the other platforms, because we're live streamed to Facebook, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, and several other places in addition to the online community. Carl, it was a pleasure having you. We didn't even get awkward this time. <laughs> no. you know i mean i just it, it was fun i i enjoy working with you and susan also but uh regardless of the eight years or however long it's been i'm back so yeah, you're, let's, carl's let's, back I, and understand carl's back and he's coming back with a vengeance in the healthy indoors media platforms so he'll, he'll be all you're yes. gonna you're gonna see so much of this guy you're gonna be happy <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say get sick of you, you know. Ah, uh, hopefully. Hey, if if they can tolerate you for eight years, they can get <laughs> tolerate me for maybe eight months. You know, I don't know. The industry's tolerate. I guess tolerated me for like thirty five years, but I'm not really sure that right. it's actually tolerated me. I'm like I'm like a nuisance. I'm a gum on your shoe, baby. You know. But that's what we need. And and uh, your comment about it being quiet today. I want to thank Terry for speaking up and challenging. That's what needs to happen. Absolutely. Not just because I say it or you say it or somebody else. We need to challenge in a way that gets clarity, that we can understand it and expand the context of it. That is, that, that's, that's one of my goals. And that's one of the reasons I came on uh, with you because I was ready to, I had a focus and an intent to do that and there was some time available and you were responsive to it. So thank you. Our pleasure, Carl. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so we're way over time. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna pull the ripcord right here. You know, uh, talking go. about your parachute. Uh, we're, we're pulling it now. We're in the, we're in the, uh, the emergency shoot. So thanks to everyone, uh, wherever you, uh, caught this, uh, broadcast either live or those of you who'll be watching it later on in all, uh, recorded areas. And we recommend that you actually, uh, if you want to view it in post viewing, go watch it over at global.healthyindoors.com and scroll down on the left menu and look for the healthy indoors live show. And all the shows are there in a, in a stack and you can pick out this show and watch it and you can still comment. We have a, a comment area there that, uh, will hang on forever it's not just like the live chat during the show this is you can post your comments and they'll be visible uh going forward so until next time we'll see you next thursday 1 to 2 p.m eastern time for the healthy indoors live show i'm bob krell 